Welcome to Trauma-Informed Caring, an Essential Conversations podcast brought to you by the Mid-America Addiction Technology Transfer Center, funded by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Although funded by SAMHSA, the content on this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. It is a trauma-informed practice as we begin to take just a moment to stop and center ourselves so that our minds have time to catch up to our bodies. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing right now, we invite you to join us as you can in a brief centering practice led by our guest today, Kim Colgrove. Let's all pause for just a moment and I'll invite you to take a nice full breath. Maybe the deepest breath you've taken all day. And slow down your exhale. And for just a few seconds, bring your awareness to self and to the breath. And now allow your breath to become comfortable. If the deep breathing feels good, do that. But do bring your awareness to the breath, to your breathing. Just take a moment to notice what's going on inside. Relax the muscles of your face. Relax your midsection. And breathe. Just breathe. The breath is the body's natural stress reliever. Anytime, any place, you can use a nice deep breath as a reset and to center yourself. Good job. Thank you, Kim. I'm Andrea Dalton. And I'm Roxanne Pendleton. And this is Trauma-Informed Caring. Welcome to today's episode. We're really excited to have our two guests today. And before I give them a moment to introduce themselves, I want to just kind of talk about what we're going to talk about today. And one of the things that uh, also is featured in another episode that we have in this series is about the obstacles that we often face in becoming trauma-informed or being on the trauma-informed journey. Uh, It's not always clear where the end of that is. In fact, there is no end. It's ongoing, constantly learning and growing and uh, improving and, you know, doing better. And along that journey, there are often obstacles that we face. There are things that happen within us that keep us from forward motion on that. And there are things in the organizations that we're working in or with that sometimes hold us back as well. So we're excited to have this conversation today with our two guests. Our first is uh, Kim Colgrove, who you heard in our introduction uh, with our grounding practice today. So Kim, will you introduce yourself briefly? Sure. I'm Kim Colgrove. I have taught meditation and mindfulness professionally for uh, over a decade now, for about six or seven years in corporate settings. And then I've worked uh, with first responders since 2017. I am the author of 
Mindfulness for Warriors and the owner of Pause First Academy, online resilience training for first responders. Thank you, Kim. And our other guest today is Jessica Welch. Jessica, will you take a moment to introduce yourself? I'm Jessica Welch. I work with Phoenix Family, and that's where most of my trauma-informed work has been or has begun, I should say. Um, I'm program manager here. I've been here for um, 15 years and I am a social worker as well. So glad to be here. And Jessica, what does Phoenix Family do? Um, What we do is we uh, provide social services on site at 32 different affordable housing communities. Most of them are in the Kansas City metro. But what we really aim to do is help people stay stable in their housing where they're at. And then when they're stable is help them meet their goals, whatever those may be. We have senior empowerment programs where we our um, older adults age in place with dignity and choice. We have our hike after school program that is literacy focused. Um, And then we have our family's first program. The end goal is to leave poverty, but getting there one step at at a time and and overcoming obstacles and then becoming more stable and, and meeting their goals. So we do in a nutshell. Thanks for inviting me to share that. We are so glad that you and Kim are both here. And I would like to kick this off by asking you a question, Jessica. You said that you've been there for 15 years, right? Mm -hmm. And when or where along the way, how many years would you say you've been working on implementing trauma-informed culture and trauma-informed principles? And that probably the past three to four years, um, you know, we had had some bits and pieces of trauma-informed care and, and how we can incorporate that in working with our residents. And then one day I went to a drama triangle training that Andrea <laughs> was leading and things just started clicking for me. And it was really the first time I did that training. You know, I, I was thinking, oh yeah, you know, that person was, you know, the victim here and that person was the person, you know, and I just started looking at every everybody else, you know, um, in all aspects of my life. And then I invited her to do the training at our agency. And then I listened to it again and I thought, oh, <laughs> I've been all of those roles too. Like, let's take a look at how I'm processing different situations too. So that was, was really kind of an eye opener for me. And then I had the opportunity to participate in the trauma-informed cultures training. And, you know, our, my supervisor and our executive director were in support of all those things. And it's been a, a long process to weave trauma-informed caring into our work culture started with the hopes and the goal that it will also trickle down to the work we do. Something that I want to just pull out of what you said was that I think, and this happens a lot, honestly, with trauma-informed care concepts and other things that I think are ways that we can improve our interactions with other people and how we take care of ourselves is that we see it in other people first. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. we notice those, you know, those things that maybe aren't functioning so well. In, in relationships or, you know, in, in the case that you were talking about with the drama triangle, it was other people. Yeah. We <laughs> see that in other people before we like recognize like, Oh, that's me too. Like <laughs> I also need to pay attention to that in myself. So I want to take just a second because I think probably a lot of our listeners may not know what the drama triangle is. Uh, you know, I think there are different 
levels of awareness of that. But the drama triangle is a a way to understand interpersonal uh, interactions, particularly in conflict. And uh, from a trauma-informed perspective, we can use the drama triangle to help us with our own self-regulation when we're in the midst of conflict. Uh, It helps us step back and be more objective and kind of understand where where everyone might be coming from. It really helps us to ask that trauma-informed question of, I wonder what happened to you, Mm -hmm. rather than jumping to the judgment of what is wrong with them? Why do they just keep doing this over and over again? Yeah. And that actually makes me think about the work that Kim does. And so my next question, I'm going to direct to you, Kim, but Jessica, of course, jump in uh, if it if it resonates for you, Kim, I know that you've done a lot of work and continue to do a lot of work with first responders. And specifically right now, I'm thinking about police officers. And when I think about conflict and trauma and the impact on not just the work, but the individual doing the work, I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about how trauma-informed caring has informed the work you've done with police officers and or what obstacles you might have run into? Sure. Well, one of the greatest things that I learned when I first was exposed to trauma-informed care by you and Andrea, actually, was how many of these people were carrying childhood or early life trauma that was impacting them now and informing their behavior. And they were completely unaware, obviously, that that was a component. And the job almost daily delivers threats and trauma and secondary trauma. And so it's like the the trauma just keeps piling on. And so helping the individuals understand that if you have emotional outbursts regularly or uncontrollable emotional outbursts, or if, you know, your the stress at work is causing issues at home, helping them to understand this doesn't mean you're a jerk. This doesn't mean that you're a bad person. And let's talk about what has happened to you, what you've experienced and what you're carrying that's impacting your mood and your personality and informing your behaviors. So it's like this huge aha moment. And sometimes it's a little bit hard for them to receive that or to be open to it initially, because for a lot of first responders, the unspoken rule is we are the help. We don't need help. You have a personal perspective on that too, because you have been married to a police officer. And so when you mentioned, you know, how it kind of comes home, I just want our audience to know that um, she's not just speaking there as a clinician or as a professional, she's speaking there as a wife and mother and, um, you know, just a normal person. So um, it sounds like what I hear you saying is, you know, the aha within yourself about the impact of all of that kind of cumulative trauma on those that are serving and then helping them to become aware is not always easy. That first obstacle I hear you describing, you know, I'm the helper. I don't need help. Right. Absolutely. And biggest obstacles is they're afraid to look at it because it, Mm. it, it's so much, you know, it feels like so much and their go-to has been to stuff it, to hold it in Mm -hmm. to. And so a huge obstacle is just to allow themselves to even give themselves that grace and start to look at it. What is a way that comes to mind, either you or Jessica, to help people, I guess, give themselves permission, just give themselves permission to look honestly at their, at their experiences 
with some compassion, with some understanding, with some awareness? Well, I can say in my work, it is encouraging the individuals to uh, become a little more self-aware, to apply a bit of self-reflection and, you know, easing them into that so that they're not always externally focused and they are by nature fixers, savers, rescuers, and so typically tend to be externally focused, but getting them to redirect that a little bit, become a little more self-aware, and that can lead with, with some time to more self-regulation. But until you help somebody figure out how to become more self-aware, a little more reflective, kind of take a look at what's really going on inside. That requires stillness and some silence and some, you know, being with, with self and and so it's it's a process. I don't see any giant epiphanies in any you know one hour class, but I do see see the wheels turning and people get emotional. You know they're all facing me and I'm facing them and I see emotion and tears. But I, I think in a nutshell, it's softly encouraging them to a little more self awareness. Something that you said makes me think too. Like there are so many layers too for helpers. Like there's the experiences that we have personally uh, in our own lives you know, maybe even pre-adulthood. And then there are the things that happen on the job. And I think in social services, it's a really similar thing. So Jessica, I'm curious what your reflection on that is. I think too, over time, you know, especially this last few years, it's been probably more acceptable to pause and take care of yourself and the realization that you have to have your cup filled before you can, can help others. So there is that culture, um, I feel that's expanding now, but, you know, even when I started school, um, self-care wasn't much of a topic and I'm like, oh, maybe they're not cut out for that work. And so there's some shame going on too. And oh, the shame. Uh-huh. It wasn't professional for me to oh. get upset in that situation yeah. or, or whatever it is, you know, and, and self-shame as well as observing and whether or not we're going to allow ourselves to take care of ourselves. Uh, so when shame becomes this obstacle, uh, whether it is internal shame or shame from your peers, I've seen it at the hospital. Unfortunately, in medicine, sometimes people get hurt uh, and you know there are injuries and assaults to healthcare workers. And I've I've seen that go down a variety of ways. You know, sometimes the people say, well, you know, it's part of the job. It's part of the job. Suck it up. Back to work. Um, those people usually have some long-term impact uh, from that. And I would argue that while it is a risk of the job, it is not part of the job to get hit. It, it is a risk that we take, but it is not a requirement and it is not something that's okay ever. And so, you know, having a family member or a peer or a friend or a supervisor, someone you can go to and process through all of the diverse feelings that, that come with getting hurt at work by those you are serving. And that doesn't just happen in healthcare. It happens in a lot of professions um, and having someone be empathetic and compassionate and help you to not just process through and release and metabolize the stress chemicals, but to make meaning, you know, to make sense of that and help you return with more, more wisdom and kind of reset and ready for the next day or the next shift versus someone who either won't listen, won't take time, has a culture that we're too tough to worry with that. Or you go home and a family member or a friend says, well, this is the job you signed up for. Um, you signed up for this. Well, that doesn't mean it's not hard. <laughs> 
mean, I can do it perfectly all the time or I don't need support. Um, but you know, just the differences in those responses, I've seen that impact long-term well-being, not just mental health, but physical health. And I wonder if at the agency, Jessica, you've seen since the implementation of trauma-informed care there, have you seen a shift among staff in what's acceptable? Is there less shame, shaming in the culture? Or do you have stories even of even experiences internally of you or a colleague where shame wasn't allowed to have the final word and, and what had the final word was compassion? Yeah, especially with COVID, I think recognizing that everybody has this additional layer has really maybe accelerated our understanding of how how we need to give people grace. I mean, people are dealing with so much complexity in their own lives and then and then you get to work and then you have that complexity there, but one thing you never get away from is COVID. Are are you saying that because it's such a universal experience in a way COVID yeah. has normalized this so. experience of pain and suffering suffering, whether it's emotional or physical, and therefore kind of opened us up to being more willing to look at it? I think so. Um, There's a lot of stuff going on right now and everybody just needs, deserves a moment, you know, to take a break. Yeah. And kindness. (laughs) So we've, we've been saying a lot, um, you know, just giving people grace and I've been trying to tell myself, give myself grace too, because it's easy to model giving others grace. Uh, you know, and you don't often see other people modeling, giving themselves grace. And so I think it's harder to learn how to do that. But yes, to answer your question, I, I do think COVID unfortunately has been an equalizer in knowing that people are struggling and that it's acceptable to struggle. That really taps into one of our kind of ongoing themes more recently in the work we're doing, which is around self-compassion and how vital that is. And how hard it is. It's so hard to sit in that uncomfortable place for ourselves, uh, especially when we're helpers, especially when we're we're sort of trained, right? Um, sometimes from a very young age to be there for other people, to give that for other people. And so turning that and, and starting that in ourselves, that self-compassion piece, I think is sometimes a huge obstacle too. And But when we're able to do that, like the way that that expands outward from us then into the other people that are around us and, and and into our communities. And, you know, we joke all the time. I don't know if it's actually a joke or not, but our department, we always say that our goal is world peace, but we really, we really believe it. <laughs> like we really believe that that's possible through some of these practices because it does transform us in a way that a better place, a better place for ourselves within within ourselves, like internally, how we treat ourselves, how we deal with the stressful experiences that we have, and, and then how we are showing up for our families, our friends, our communities, and, and bigger and beyond. And it's constant. It's a topic of daily discussion. So it's happening consistently all the time. So it gives us more opportunities to talk about giving ourselves grace, giving each other grace, uh, being curious as to why somebody might be struggling instead of what's wrong with them. Well, what's what's wrong is that we're in a pandemic, you know, Um, and, you know, because of the stigma uh, with mental health, that's more acceptable than, oh, they had a rough time at work yesterday or whatever it is. So I'm going to invite us all to lean into a little bit of vulnerability and a little bit of discomfort here and ask if anyone of us would be willing to share ways that you 
address that obstacle within your own self. And and I'll, I'll start to give you a moment to think. This is a very recent thing that happened. Um, so I have, as we all do, I have this inner critic and she is wicked mean. She's <laughs> wicked mean. And she's usually wicked mean to me. And there was a day a couple of weekends ago where I just didn't feel well. And I thought, I'm just not going to do much today. And then of course I ended up doing, I did your thing, Andrea, where I made a to-da list at the end of the day instead of to-do. Mm-hmm. And all these ideas of things I needed to do that I hadn't gotten done. But I thought, no, I'm going to make a list of the things I had gotten done. And it was probably like 25 things. Like it was a lot, but in my mind, I was lazy and I hadn't done anything because I hadn't exercised. I did 25 other things, but I was feeling sick and, you know, achy and awful. So I laid on the couch, but my inner critic was vicious mean to me. And I decided that she was so wicked that I just, I didn't even want her to be a part of me. I was going to give her a name. She needed a different name. And I was playing with my own name, like mean Roxanne, would that be Roxine? Or, well, I won't, I won't tell you some of the other ones, but anyway, they weren't good. (laughs) But anyway, I thought about it for a long time. And then I thought, wait a minute, this response in me is actually a fight response from stress. This is a stress. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking about all the times that that fierce warrior inside me, like literally saved my life. The situations Mm -hmm. where she stood up and did things that I couldn't imagine doing in situations that were terrifying, whether it's a child or an adult. And I thought, no, she needs, she needs a name. So her name is Zena because she (laughs) is the warrior. And now when she gets cranky with me, I've decided that what, that I'm not going to demean her need for attention or love or encouragement or kindness. And so the the crankier she gets, I'm going to love her into wholeness. And I, I texted that to my friend. I'm like, Zena is really on a rampage today. So I'm going to go out to eat at my favorite healthy restaurant because she needs love. <laughs> and it was a huge turning point for me because I'm, I'm 52 years old and I've got, you know, decades of self-critical thinking that, that I am really good at it. You know, someone says, why do you do that? Because I'm so good at it. So me changing and saying, you know, Zena is part of me that I need. She's my fight response and I love her. And when she's crankiest, she needs care, the kind of care I would give my kid or a good friend or my husband. It's been really transformative. And I know it sounds a little weird and people might make fun of me that I've named my inner fight response, but it's working for me. Anyone else have an example? (laughs) Oh, well, I'll be happy to jump in there. Um, A real experience that I had myself was I was taking a mindfulness class from somebody else and he led this really beautiful compassion meditation and it was guided and we were giving love and compassion and empathy to, you know, that person and that like that. And it was beautiful. It felt good. And I could really do that. I got really into it. And then he had us turn that compassion and that empathy and that love to ourselves. And I got instantly emotional, almost embarrassing. This is almost difficult for me to tell the story because I felt like I hit a brick wall when I turned that same level of compassion, empathy, and love to myself. And I couldn't believe how unaware I was that it was that difficult for me to give that same level of compassion that I had been free flowing to all the suggestions he had made. And when it turned back to me, I was blocked and I got emotional and I admitted it through at the end of the class, we had a little exchange, a little Q and a, and I asked if anybody else had experienced that and nobody did, or they didn't admit to it. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> um, and so that's been a while ago, but I, I, I remember that. And I try to just be a little bit nicer, a little bit kinder to myself, you know, like you Roxanne, when I have 
a hundred things I should be getting done. And I'm just, I hear myself saying, you just need to hustle more. You need to have better time management. You need to this and that. Mm -hmm. I've been trying to stop myself when I say that in my mind. And honestly, you're actually, you've gotten a lot accomplished. You're really doing pretty well. I mean, can you just relax a little bit and be a little nicer to yourself? That was a huge epiphany to me. I and here I am, I'm 55. <laughs> and it was within this past year. And I thought, how could I be so unaware that I had such a difficult self, a difficult time with self-compassion? So I know I'm not alone, but gosh, that was made me emotional. Yeah. No, you're definitely not alone. Uh, (laughs) And I, I'm glad you said like they either didn't have the experience or they didn't admit that they had a similar experience. Cause I think it is even hard to like say that to other people. And I remember for me, um, I went through a time of like really significant burnout as a result of intense compassion fatigue, as well as a lot of, uh, things that were happening in the organization I was working in at the time. And, and then I also had like personal things going on. So it was a time when I was working as a music therapist in the state hospital setting and uh, the location I was at closed and all the patients, all the staff, most of the staff were moved, you know, an hour away. Uh, So we were all commuting. I had a new baby. Um, I was so concerned for our patients as I often had been (laughs) in the course of my life and like thought I had kind of already dealt with like how to manage that so that I was okay. Like when I would get home at the end of the day, but then like this change uh, having to commute. I was in the car for more than two hours a day, uh, had a new baby at home, was not getting a lot of sleep. My care for myself was non-existent. And I, I do remember saying on more than one occasion to my husband, like, I just don't have time to take care of myself. And I gained a lot of weight and was, I mean, like the way I was dealing with what was going on was I would escape. I would escape, you know, at lunch with my coworker, we would go to, we would go out to eat. Uh, I would escape at the end of the day by like, you know, as much as I could laying on the couch, usually, you know, sleeping baby in my arms and zone out, eat whatever I could find, you know, like there's, I didn't even feel like I had the time. And I think one of the aha moments for me was it's not about, and this is my experience. And I know that this is different for other people, probably at different times in your life too, but I had to kind of identify like, what, what is it that is not helping me right now? Like what is not benefiting me? Uh, and I was able to like name off some of those things. And then how am I going to be okay? Like things are not going to change. Uh, I still have a baby. I'm still commuting. I still deeply care for my patients. Like all of those things are con- going to continue to be there, but I also need to take care of myself so that I can do all of those things. And I just had to make some major changes at that point. And I had to ask for help in order to do it. And, and I think that that, um, just to tie it back to what you were saying, Kim, like being able to admit it for yourself and then admit it to somebody else that I know I need it, but I can't do it alone. I can't do it by myself. I need, I need some support. I need some help. I'm going to get emotional now talking about that too. I mean, those experiences, I think really, really influenced then for me, the way I am able to set boundaries for myself now around overwork, around, you know, getting too involved in, you know, various things like, uh, I've been talking a little bit about how I've gotten off social media for a while. 
uh, that was a boundary I needed to establish for myself because I was getting sucked in again to those things that were not good for my nervous system. That, um, that asking for help, Andrea, is such an important moment of vulnerability. And the, the paradox is that helpers tend to be terrified of that level of vulnerability. Totally. To take the step <laughs> to ask for help. Because we we should know what to do. We're trained. We do we do this for other people. But such yeah. an important moment of vulnerability and to so healing for you and to model that for the people maybe whoever you're asking for help. That's huge. I'm sure we've all experienced that in across the professions that I work with. That fear of being vulnerable mm-hmm. is huge obstacle. Yeah. For even admitting they need help. And then, you know, another obstacle yet to ask for the help. And yet, according to the research, I'm thinking right now of Dr. Bill Geis, who is a, he's an expert in um, suicidology and those things that lead to and away from that. He would say the research shows that help seeking behavior is one of the most potent anti-drivers, and that's my word, that's probably not his word, but um, being unwilling to ask for help is a driver of lethal suicidality. And so being willing to seek help and being good at seeking help is a protection. And so I have started since learning that I've started saying to myself, this new mantra, which is strong, smart, successful people are experts at getting the help they need. Not strong, smart, successful people don't need help. We all need help. We are, no one is independent. Are you kidding me? We, I didn't make the electricity that came on when I turned a light switch today. I didn't wire it. I didn't cold. I don't even know. I didn't know how to get electricity, right? Like I didn't raise the cow or the pig that was turned into that delicious bacon. We have some measure of independence when truly we're all interdependent. And so strong, smart, successful people are experts at gathering the help they need when they need it. And if we could just flip that around so that we were proud of asking for help, look at how good I am at getting the help I need mm-hmm. <laughs> versus ashamed of it. I think that would be profoundly transformative for society and definitely for individuals who are, who are suffering. I want to tie this back in a little bit to culture transformation, because I think that concept of asking for help applies in those like ways that we want to shift how we're doing things in our organizations too. You know, I think that a lot of times I've seen organizations that are like, yeah, we, we do trauma-informed care because they, they do toward their uh, clients, toward their, their patients, their service users. They have lots of trauma-informed practices in place. I think where one of the obstacles sometimes happens is like, how do we do that for each other <laughs> too? And so I, I think there's a connection there with, you know, being able to ask for help. And we're just not comfortable doing that with our coworkers, even in those situations. So I'm just curious if anybody has any insights into that. I think part of asking for help too is knowing that other people are so busy and not wanting to burden others, um, at least from, you know, a coworker perspective. But um, I will say one thing we've always had at Phoenix Family is kind of this hands-on deck. So if something's going on and you need help, you know, just basically say the words hands-on deck. And that means we need everybody to listen and be able to chip in. Having um, kind of new cohort 
groups for our new hires to really kind of process the first six months getting acclimated to Phoenix family. Mm. Hey, this is what you do in these situations that aren't procedural. And one of the things that And it ties back to vulnerability a little bit too. But one of the things that we do is have our um, leaders, all of our directors talk about Phoenix family the first session. And this last session we did, um, we had a new hire say, you know, how do you handle just not getting everything done? It was a great conversation. Um, You know, all of our directors were vulnerable and said, we don't get it all done. And and that's okay. And it's okay to not accomplish everything you you wanted to do during the day. And we're giving you permission to, you know, um, work through that too for yourselves and, and to reach out for help. And it was, you know, really just this vocalization of giving yourself grace. Getting everything done is less important than getting something done, right? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yes. I, and I mean, I'm thinking like in terms of how we care for people, um, mm-hmm. because if we are always trying to do everything, that sometimes is an obstacle too, because then we can get kind of stuck because it's too much. It's too much to do. And we can't, we literally cannot get it all done. And that can keep people from doing anything. (laughs) And sometimes we just have to do something. We have to do one thing sometimes. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, like that is what moves us along. That is what allows us to make progress is we do something. I think that's so hard in our cultural context where, you know, we're so driven as a as a culture to produce, to achieve, to complete, to you know, have those big outcomes uh, that look really great, you know, and I, I think we see that in trauma-informed care work too, and in, in trying to implement culture changes, you know, the, the funders or the, uh, the board, the executive director, like they want to see some tangible outcomes from it. We, it's not always, it's not always tangible. Uh, sometimes those outcomes are like, how are we taking care of one another in our organization? How are we able to pause and be in that vulnerable maybe uncomfortable place <laughs> and, and be okay, right? I loved the way that you used the word accountability there. I even have an internal reaction to it. it in uh-huh. my life, it's been, um, it's about you're accountable to getting things done, whatever that looks like as an adult, you know, to the two of you in that conversation just used it in such a beautiful way as an accountability to self-care. Like in the story you told Jessica, I I had this picture of you all sitting around, you know, your whole team talking about how hard this is and it's a place of overwhelm and just being really vulnerable and authentic and leaders as well as new staff, everyone talking about, yeah, this is hard. This is one way to get through it. This is another way to get through it and maybe just do one thing. And in the midst of it, take good care of yourself. And that was a total different sense of accountability than what I'm used to. So I just, I want to thank you for the story and and then the reflection, the story, Jessica, the reflection, Andrea, because that gave me a new way to look at that word accountability to, uh, to self-care, to well-being, to um, the most important things versus all those other things that oftentimes seem urgent, but aren't really important. I appreciate that. All right. I have one more question that I would love anyone to jump in and answer. Uh, We like to know because trauma-informed care, as Andrea said before, is a journey. It's It's not a sprint and it's not a marathon because there's no finish line. It's a continually evolving journey of growth and deepening understanding and deepening compassion and deepening transformation. And when it's introduced to an organization or perhaps a group or even an individual 
oftentimes there are people who are like, I'm first of all, no, I don't have enough time. (laughs) I can't take on one more thing. I don't have the capacity. So there's that response. There's also the response of this is just a bunch of touchy feely woo woo. I'm not interested in, or there's a response that uh, just says, you know, it's kind of the flavor of the month. And if I just keep my head down and nose to the grindstone, it'll blow over. And then we'll get the next big idea from leadership. You know, those are all things that cause people to, to dislike it or to reject it initially, uh, along with the things you've talked about, like, I don't, I don't, I don't have trauma. I, you know, I help people. I don't need to look at my own trauma. So there's a lot of things that kind of get in the way. Do do any of you have a story of how someone who was initially resistant eventually became aware that this was legitimate, that this was neurologically based, that this was applicable to those we serve as well as those of us doing the serving. And it truly is transformative. I hear a lot of transformations and ahas from the groups that I serve because they tend to be very skeptical and they are, I mean, I'm not trying to generalizations here, but a lot of the first responders that I've encountered have thought the things we're talking about here today, exactly what you said, touchy feely, hippy dippy, woo woo, new agey stuff, not interested. But there's this really great story. It's a friend of mine. He's become a friend of mine and he Uh, is a military veteran. He's a police officer. He actually is in my book. And he went to this five-day retreat in nature for first responders because he was kind of at his wit's end. And um, he tells the story so beautifully, and I will just do the Reader's Digest version, but they had a day where they were out in nature. And he said, all of a sudden, and it was towards the end of his time there, he looked up and he said that he felt like he could see colors he maybe had never seen before. And he just kind of looked all around at the nature and the sun and the colors and the flowers, and it freaked him out a little bit. So he got with one of the clinicians and said, this happened to me and what's going on? And the clinician said, well, you had uh, suppressed everything. You had suppressed your emotions to the point that all of your senses were suppressed. And so you've had this bit of a transformation here. And it's like, you're seeing some things for the first time, literally. And now that big Marine it's a police officer, meditates daily, does yoga. And, you know, he's had a lot of transformations, but I love that story because it's so tactical, practical. I mean, it's not just esoteric and, you know, he had a real physical response to his healing process. Thank you. That is a powerful story. And when we see people like that, that we trust, that we know is one way shift into a different way of being, I think that just even if they never say anything about it, I think it invites and encourages others to also shift. It makes it, again, uh, it normalizes what we're talking about it and it gives permission, if you will. Uh, so that kind of experience is powerful, not just for the individual, but for every single other person that is connected to that individual. Yeah. Jessica, I know that you also have kind of a transformation story because I got to witness it in working (laughs) with your organization. And I I think that it might be a little bit of a different transformation story. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I went, I think, you know what I'm talking about. So I'm just going to turn it over to you. Yeah, sure. You'd share that. Sure. Um, 
went after I went to the trauma informed cultures the training um, for a couple of days. I you know I was trying to think about how I might approach conversations, and you know I got a couple of books and put a couple of things on my desk, and then you know just let people know, hey, I went to this training, and or they might ask, you know, what's going on? What what's this all about? Um, and just telling them a few snippets, maybe what stuck out to me, and and quite frankly, what stuck out to me was the the brain science behind it. And I always say that because it makes it, and like Kim said, um, it makes it more tangible. It makes it more real than, you know, a bunch of feel good um, <laughs> things. So I invited people to kind of tell me their thoughts on it and tried to help people, you know, make, make it meaningful for them. And if they wanted more information, I shared that and, and, and just did that with a handful of different people around the organization and did it with some of the committees that I was on. And yeah, it just kind of started to to grow. We started to talk about it more. And then we had the opportunity for Andrea to come out. Um, and we've had a lot of, we had probably a good year of brainstorming, <laughs> I would say. And Andrea, I know you were on some of those conversations too, but brainstorming, what does this mean to Phoenix family? And what what can we, what can we do? What can we accomplish? And so the the new cohort project that I mentioned earlier was one of those things. But um, we've developed a roadmap of how we're going to be more become a more trauma-informed agency. And for us, the roadmap makes it more sustainable um, because it's not the flavor of the month. And if we put our heads down, you know, something will change. It's okay. We're following this roadmap. It's here. It's not going away. So when you're dealing with crises all day, every day, it's hard to find that time to forward think. It makes me think of the saying from Emergent Strategies, small is all, that really, at the end of the day, the only agency we truly have is what we do. What we do in our own self, in our own desk space, in whatever space we inhabit. And if we start making those small changes... They ripple out. They uh, are reflected in bigger and bigger ways, in many times ways we cannot have imagined, in ways we might not have expected. But if we just work on the things we can do, not only does that actually change the world, it gives us that sense of accomplishment and just that sense of contribution that also is protective against burnout. It's protective against mental dis-ease. And it strengthens us. It it feeds our sense of purpose. And so don't be afraid to go small. So this has been a great conversation, Uh, Jessica and Kim. Thank you so much. Uh, I think our, some of our takeaways today, uh, the first one I'm seeing that I'm like resonating with is that idea of I'm the helper. I don't need help. And that kind of stoicism that we adopt uh, oftentimes in in a helping setting. And just the interesting way that I think COVID in particular has kind of normalized the way that we understand mental health, mental well-being, and how we're dealing with that. Uh, It's kind of normalized that across the board. And, you know, I think that that already probably that groundwork was already starting uh, in social service agencies in particular and and in healthcare. Uh, But like, it's really brought it into, there's like a a big shining light on it right now uh, because of the, just the world that we're existing in at the moment. 
Yeah. And that obstacle I think is fed by, by another obstacle, which is shame. You know, we feel inadequate or unworthy, or we have scripts or an internal critic or even external critics who give messages that it's not okay for us to do what we need to do to take good care of our brains and our bodies. And yet that is exactly what we need to do that we might serve at our highest potential and and our highest capacity. I'm also thinking as we review some of these obstacles, isn't it interesting that they all are rather internal? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wasn't quite sure what to expect when we asked about obstacles you encountered. Would they be organizational? Would they be other people? Would they be these kind of external forces? And I think we've alluded to some of those, but mainly what we've talked about today is these internal obstacles. Uh, thinking I'm the helper, I know I'm not going to ask for help. That's not okay. Or feeling ashamed of needing time to unwind, time mm-hmm. to rest, time to to just to just be, and not have to give or do or rescue. And so that second obstacle we talked about shame and ways to really love yourself into wholeness and not necessarily in a touchy feely way, but in terms of just taking time, being silent, becoming reflective and being an advocate for what your brain and body truly need. Yeah. And then the last one that I'll mention is the obstacle of overwhelm. Uh, There's just too much. There's so much. uh, And that can feel paralyzing at times. And so the ability to pause and ask for help. I love Jessica's example of uh, all hands on deck, you know, being able to have that common language among your coworkers, um, maybe in your family. I mean, I think, I think there's definitely an application there sometimes to reach out to one another. And then that piece about accountability to self-care in the face of that overwhelming time, Uh, those things come and go, but if we are consistent with how we are accountable to our self-care, that does help sustain us through those really challenging times. So thank you to our guests, Jessica Welch and Kim Colgrove. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yes. Thank you. We have benefited from your wisdom and insight and your willingness to share with us. I want to say to our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We want to encourage you to check out the Mid-America ATTC website for more resources. We also want to point you to our virtual room of refuge. This is a place that's really, it's online, so it's open 24-7, and you can find a variety of support for your own well-being. You can access our YouTube channel there. You can subscribe to our newsletter, Conscious Connections. So again, thank you for joining us today. It is our hope that where you work and where you live, this podcast will offer you practical support for the practice of trauma-informed caring. 